Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus increment 136, and we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 5 and begin with prayer. Father, I thank you for the immense privilege of communicating your word again today. I pray that you'll render the message effective, because only you can do it, effective to, toward conversion, toward transformation, toward great blessing and benefit to all the hearers. <clears throat> we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In the interest of being accurate, the section into which we've entered is bracketed by an inclusio, as we've observed before. Hebrews 5.10, we have the phrase, archpriest like Melchizedek. In Hebrews 6.20, which is at the end of the proposed section here, we have archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. Now, I'm trying to be precise. So again, 5.10, archpriest like Melchizedek. 6.20, archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. And so in 5.10, the PT eliminates the phrase for the age. Why does he do so? I think it's just to emphasize the point. Jesus has become a different kind of archpriest from Aaron and a different kind of priest than the priests of the hereditary line of Aaron through Levi and on down. Jesus was designated by God an archpriest like Melchizedek, and the author uses archpriest in 510 rather than just priest as he has it in 56, which is a quotation in part of Psalm 109.4 in the Greek text, 110.4 in your English Bibles. So in 5.10 of Hebrews, he omits the phrase, for the age. But in Hebrews 6.20, in the next direct allusion to Psalm 109.4 in the Septuagint, he puts the phrase back in, archpriest, for the age, like Melchizedek. So we have a trio of references or allusions to that oracle of God. It's an oracle that is supported by or fortified by an oath. So when we get all the way to 620 in Hebrews, we're going to find that by two immutable things, and those two immutable or unchangeable things are an oath and a promise, or an oath and an oracle of God, the oath being the Lord has sworn and will not retract, and the oracle being you are a priest forever like Melchizedek, or a priest for the age like Melchizedek. So he says at the end, and we should receive great encouragement from this, by two unchangeable things, an oath and the promise of God, we have strong consolation and a hope that's like an anchor for the soul in the storms of this age. So in the first trio of allusions to this oracle, the oracle of Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4, this oracle, he has first in 5.6, a priest for the age like Melchizedek. That's Hebrews 5.6. 
The second in the trio is 510 of Hebrews, an archpriest like Melchizedek. The author makes a, an adaptation and an innovative change in translation because he's saying interpretively that priest here means archpriest. And then he uses archpriest for the age like Melchizedek in 620, rounding out a trio of allusions to that oracle that's fortified by an oath. In 510, we see an accent on archpriest by the change from priest to archpriest. Priest in 5.6, archpriest in 5.10. Again, we see an accent fall on archpriest or high priest, if you're more attuned to that. So in 5.6 and 6.20, the accent is on for the age or age abiding. Forever is good in one sense, but we have a question about that that we've entertained before. So we're going to leave it as for the age. So in 5.6 of Hebrews and 6.20, the accent is on for the age, which became conspicuous. That phrase became conspicuous by its absence in 5.10 and then by its addition again in 6.20. Now, I know we're dealing with a lot here, but this is in the interest of being precise. So you'll also have this on in print as well as in auditory teaching. Now, by the time the PT gets to the central section of Hebrews, which is beginning with 7.1, Hebrews 7.1, by the time he gets to the central section of Hebrews in 7.1, the point has been highly lucid it's been made and is highly lucid and clear that Jesus has been designated by God, the Father, as an archpriest for the age, like Melchizedek. And that this designation of Jesus distinguishes him as an archpriest who is superior to Aaron and all the archpriests and priests in Aaron's hereditary lineage. Aaron's hereditary lineage produced a priesthood generation after generation which over and over again is curtailed, shortened or truncated by death. When the priest died it was passed down to another priest. So no priest of the Levitical order was made a priest for the age but only for the duration of his life. And every life is like a vapor. It appears for a while and then it's gone. So again, I want to mention this first of all. Jesus is distinguished from the archpriests and priests according to Aaron's lineage because all of those priests and archpriests, priesthood was curtailed by death over and over again. The Aaronic priesthood, archpriesthood, which was over and over again shortened by the deaths of the many archpriests to begin again in their hereditary heirs was ended once and for all with the death of the Messiah, Jesus. In other words, as each priest ended his priesthood with his own death, when Jesus Christ came with his death, that whole priesthood was ended. 
and really Jesus began his with death and then resurrection. So he's a high priest for the age by virtue of his resurrection from the dead and his living in a power of an indestructible life, as Hebrews 7.16 says it. And we should also match that up with 2 Corinthians 13.4. Hebrews is unique in the New Testament because it's the PT, the pastor-teacher, the gift of pastor-teacher taking the mantle or taking the sittily, the message stick from the apostle. And apostles and prophets, pastor teachers and evangelists are given until we all come to the faith, the unity of the faith, and to the measure of the stature that is exemplified in the man Christ Jesus in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. And so that's why I think it's extraordinary that this PT would give this homily to Paul, the apostle, for his review and endorsement according to Astheus's hypothesis, which comes into a possibility or a probability more and more the more and more I look at it. And so the Aaronic priesthood, which was over and over again shortened by the deaths of the many archpriests in order to begin again in their hereditary heirs, was ended once and for all with the death of Messiah Jesus. Jesus' death signaled a new and permanent archpriesthood which could never be curtailed, shortened, truncated, or cut off by death. His death also signaled a new covenant. Now you see, that's going to come into play very richly in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm, in this message, I'm going to be anticipating, and by that I mean handling in advance certain things that we'll be looking at more clearly down the road and more thoroughly down the road. So when I say we're anticipating the heart and center of Hebrews, what I mean is we're dealing a little bit in advance with, those, with that content just so that you'll be familiar with the territory when we get there. So we could also say it in a military sense, we're taking our first foray into the central section. Again, so that when we get there, you'll be a little bit more familiar with the territory. So Jesus' death signaled a new and permanent priesthood, archpriesthood, which would never be truncated or cut off by death. His death also signaled a new covenant, which unlike the one instituted at Sinai, is an everlasting covenant, says Hebrews 13.20. It's a better one, says Hebrews 7.22, it's fortified by better promises, promises which, in fact, guarantee that the recipients of it become nothing less than partakers of the divine nature. This is a connection, and when I give verse references, it's often more significant than you would imagine because if you follow them up, you can have a doctrine on its own from comparing 2 Peter 1.4 with Ezekiel 36. 27 or 36 26 to 27 being partakers of the divine nature has a reference to the new covenant in which God places his spirit within us and causes us to walk according to God's statutes and ordinances which have to do with love and so the better promises 
that accompany the new covenant guarantee that the recipients of that new covenant become partakers of the divine nature. Does not mean they become divine as persons, but partakers of the divine nature. Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, the archpriest for the age, like Melchizedek, which incidentally is arguably the most important insight of the whole Bible, if I may make that declaration. Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, the archpriest for the age like Melchizedek, now lives and serves and intercedes with God in behalf of human beings in the power of an indestructible life. You don't curtail, cut short, or truncate an indestructible life. You don't end an indestructible life. So you don't end, truncate, or curtail an indestructible archpriesthood. It's age abiding. And so Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, by which he entered into an immortal and incorruptible state, bodily state, is the archpriest for the age like Melchizedek, and according to Hebrews 7.16, he now lives and serves, and in 7.25 intercedes with God in behalf of human beings in the power of an imperishable life, an indestructible life. Again, Hebrews 7.16 should be compared with 2 Corinthians 13.4, which says more generally that he was crucified in weakness, and yet now he lives by the power of God. What are we doing here? What are we doing? Once in a while, it's good to stop and ask that question. What are we doing? Well, we're anticipating, and by that I mean we're dealing in advance with the content of the central section of this sermon, the sermon called Hebrews. The heart of the homily is the explication, and by explication we mean exposition or explanation, explication of Psalm 109.4 of the Septuagint, 110.4, of course. We're also anticipating the notion put forth in Hebrews 8.3. You might want to take a look at it unless you're driving or using some kind of heavy machinery. We're anticipating the notion put forth in Hebrews 8 and verse 3. My translation reads like this with bracketed commentary. For every archpriest, remember that? Pas archierus from Hebrews 5.1. Every archpriest. That means whether they're Levitical or Melchizedekan. Every archpriest, even high priests in the Roman cult, they had something in common. Every archpriest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest... Jesus, the archpriest for the age like Melchizedek, also to have something to offer. That's the Greek phrase that I'm using for today's title of Increment 136. It's necessary for this priest, as it was for all the archpriests and priests of the Levitical order or Aaronic order, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Jesus had to have something to offer. 
He wasn't going to offer a ram, a young bull, a lamb, a dove. He wasn't going to offer animals as sacrifices, nor was he going to offer their blood. So an indispensable requirement of every archpriest, again, remember Hebrews 5.1, Hebrews 8.3, both say every archpriest. An indispensable requirement of every archpriest is that he, quote, have something to offer. Since his central task is to offer gifts <coughs> and sacrifices to make expiation slash propitiation, we'll be dealing with that subject again, why expiation and propitiation really belong together as a single concept. To make expiation or propitiation for sins, and the reason for that is because expiation means the elimination of sins, whereas propitiation means the effect of satisfaction, that God's wrath, we could say, towards sins has been satiated or satisfied. I'll be explaining that because that's apparently offensive to some prissy universalists of our time. So then, an indispensable requirement of every archpriest is that he have something to offer since his central task is to offer gifts and sacrifices. And note this, this comes from Hebrews 2.17 as well as 5.1, to make expiation for sins to make expiation for sins. The priest has to have something. The archpriest has to have something to offer that would be efficacious in eliminating sins. Consequently, Jesus, the archpriest, like Melchizedek, had to have something to offer. Hebrews 8.3. And this introduces a huge and enormously significant element of the homily. Here's a hint. What Jesus had to offer is better than what every archpriest of the Aaronic order had to offer. We know that he offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications in the days of his flesh. And that word offered is a priestly term. Hebrews 5.7 We also know that he also offered something much more. A second hint may be dropped here, this time from something that the author of Hebrews did not say, but is there by implication. And here it is. This is something he didn't play on, but it's something that is implied. When Melchizedek was first mentioned in the scripture, and that's Genesis 14, 17 through 20 in a little pericope or episode. He came out to meet Abram, and it says he brought out bread. Now, it's in the plural here, so it can be translated as loaves of bread or pieces of bread, bread that had been broken, and wine. He brought out bread, pieces of bread or loaves of bread, if you want to consider it to be like the loaves of presentation in the holy place in Hebrews 9.2, or the bread that Jesus broke at the Eucharist, which symbolized his body, which he had to offer. <clears throat> but Melchizedek, again, it says he came out to Abraham and he brought out 
bread and wine, Genesis 14, 18. This is not mentioned by the PT. He doesn't play on that part of the Melchizedek episode. The PT who wrote Hebrews doesn't speak of it, but he does speak eloquently about what the bread and wine that Jesus offered in the first Eucharist represented, for he speaks of the body, that's Hebrews 10.5 and Hebrews 10.10, and he speaks of the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 9.12, 9.14, where it's called the blood of Christ, 10.10, 13.12, and Hebrews 10.29, where it's also called the blood of the new covenant. That is what this archpriest, namely Jesus, had to offer, his body Hebrews 10, 5 through 10, and his blood, Hebrews 9, 12, 10, 19, etc. So with specific reference to the Aaronic priestly function on the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the writer says, the archpriest alone goes through the second curtain once a year. Only once a year, only one archpriest alone goes in past the first curtain into the holy place and past the second curtain into the holiest place of all. And so again in Hebrews 9, 7, the archpriest goes alone through the second curtain once a year, and never without blood, it says, never without blood, never without blood, which he offers. Everyone has to have something to offer if he's an archpriest. Blood is the main offering. Never without blood, which he offers for himself, and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Please notice that whole phrase, that whole clause or series of clauses because it's extremely important. The archpriest of the old order goes or habitually went through the second curtain only once a year and never without blood. He went in alone and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. It doesn't say the sins of the people, period. It says the sins of the people committed in ignorance. That makes me wonder what happens, what about the other sins, the ones that were committed so-called willfully, with full knowledge, this is a sin, I am going to do it. If those sins weren't atoned for, <laughs> we're all in a hurt locker, let me tell you that right now. So we're going to have to deal with that subject. Not only further on down the road, but even a little bit today. So, notice in Hebrews 9, 7, never without blood emphatically. Not without blood, or we could say, I think it's more emphatic here where we'd say never without blood. And note the phrase, which he offers. Remember, every archpriest has to have something to offer. 
And when he goes into the holiest place of all, once a year alone, it's never without blood, which he offers. So when he goes through the second curtain, once a year alone on Yom Kippur, it is never without blood. So as we've noted already, the old system, meaning the Levitical system of priests, required the archpriest to offer the blood of animals for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Jesus entered through the second curtain, the one in heaven, once and for all, illustrated by the dramatic event on earth in the course of his death when the curtain in the tabernacle in the temple was torn from top to bottom, as we know from Matthew 27, 51. We got a lot more to say about that, but not now. Jesus entered through the second curtain once and for all and forever, having obtained age-abiding redemption, Hebrews 9, 12, through his own blood, not the blood of others, not the blood of animals, which could never take away sin in reality, but only symbolize it and only ritually enact it. So he too entered through the second veil, only not the veil of the tabernacle on earth, the curtain of the tabernacle in heaven. He too entered through the second veil, the one in heaven, and not without blood. That'll make you think for a minute. Now, as similarities are evident here between the Levitical and the Melchizedekan priesthood, as similarities are evident, dissimilarities abound. Jesus did not offer blood of others, but his own blood. Jesus knew no sin, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it. He was without sin, as Hebrews 4.15 puts it. So Jesus knew no sin, so he only offered one unrepeatable sacrifice for sins forever. The question is begged. We talk about that begs the question. Well, this question is begged. Did Jesus offer his blood for the sins of ignorance of the people of Israel or for the sins of all the world of humankind over the course of all time? I think you know the answer to that, the sins of all the world over the course of all time. A more unusual question, however, is this. Did Jesus offer his own blood only for sins committed in ignorance by all the people of the world in all of history? or for all sins, including so-called willful sins, too? That's a good question. I'll let it hang in a tree like a pinata. You can take some swings at it. When Paul speaks of Jesus' death on the cross, the apostle says, listen carefully, I'm partly answering that question already. When Paul the Apostle speaks of Jesus' death on the cross, he says, Christ died for our sins. Now, that's all he says. He says according to the scriptures. He does not just say our sins committed in ignorance. He, he didn't say Christ died for our sins committed in ignorance. He just said Christ died for our sins. 
according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15.3. And he also notes that this is of prime or first importance in the gospel of our salvation. Of primary importance in the gospel of our salvation is that Jesus had something to offer to expiate sins and that he died for our sins. That means he was a priest. Paul only implies it. The Hebrews author teaches it. When John the Immerser spoke of Jesus as the Lamb of God in John 129 and 136, but especially 129, when John the Immerser, John the Dunker, the Baptist, the baptizer, spoke of Jesus or identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, he, say, he said, he takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sins of the world committed in ignorance. He didn't say that. He said he takes away the sin of the world. Takes away is another word for what we would say technically expiates, eliminates, takes away the sins of the world. He didn't say he takes away the sins of ignorance of the world or the sins that the world committed in ignorance. Now, in one sense, and this is another hint, Every sin is committed in ignorance because even if you commit a willful sin, it's in ignorance of the possible consequences. And it's also in ignorance of the egregiousness of that act. We don't know what we're doing even when we sin willfully. That'll be another part of the answer. And so when John... I think he's the beloved disciple. He wrote the epistles as well as the revelation as well as the gospel of John. When John says that, quote, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the expiation slash propitiation of the sins of the whole world in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, he does not say the sins of the whole world that were committed in ignorance in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. These are things that we can think about, and that's one of the most favorite ways I like to teach. It's, a, it's called the way of discovery. It puts forth things that you have to think about and that aren't just taught to you in the way of teaching. They are presented to you in the way of discovery, allowing you to discover by your own research what you think the answers are and do it in Scripture. Now back to Melchizedek. Look at Genesis 14:17. We're going to look at this passage a few times, but 14:17 through 20. Uh, by that I mean a few times in the course of our study of Hebrews, Lord willing. Genesis 14:17, again, my translation. Now Abram having returned from the defeat of Kodolagomor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sawe or Shava near Salem. And this was a flat, open plain of a king, it's called. Then Melchizedek, in contrast to the king of Sodom, here we have the king of Salem, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, Hebrew, of course, here is Melchizedek, meaning king of righteousness, and king of Salem brought out breads and wine, or bread loaves, or pieces of bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. And blessing Abram, he said, Blessed be Abram to God Most High, 
This is before Abram became Abraham, as we know. Blessing Abram, he said, Blessed be Abram to God Most High, who created the heaven and the earth. In verse 20, And praised be the God Most High, El Elyon, who has delivered up your enemies as subjects to you. This also has a little hint. This Melchizedek is speaking about someone in the loins of Abraham who's going to have everything subject to him. But then he closes by saying, and he, Abram, meaning gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything, a tithe of all the spoils. And we'll see the significance of that in the central part of Hebrews. But again, we're only just anticipating or making a first foray into that territory for now. Now, the bread, plural, could have referred in general to food, but it nevertheless is in the plural. It's used in the plural in Hebrews 9.2, where the loaves of presentation, or we call it the showbread in the old King James, was found in the holy place. But it seems also at least present here. There's a hint present of Jesus instituting the Eucharist with bread that he broke into pieces, plural, which represented his body and wine, or the fruit of the vine, which represented his blood of the new covenant. Blood of the new covenant. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed or poured out for many. In Matthew 26, 28. So Jesus also said in another place that he was, he said, I am that bread from heaven that was symbolized in the manna for the children of Israel in the desert. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And he also said, That's, that bread is my flesh or my body, which I will give for the life of the world, John 6, 51. Thus revealing that what Jesus had to offer as great archpriest for the age would feed all of humanity over all time with eternal life. That's remarkable. So much for that. In the next gear that we're shifting to, I want you to once again look at the content of Hebrews 5 and summarize the beginning and the end of this section. Hebrews 5, 5. Similarly, the Messiah did not promote himself to be archpriest. On the contrary, the one, that's God the Father, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2, 7, also quoted in Hebrews 1, 5, also said in another place, and that means Psalm 110.4. You are a priest for the age, just like Melchizedek. I know it says after the order of Melchizedek, but we'll clarify that again a little ways down the road. Now, in 5.10, skipping over 7 and 8, and he was designated by God, an archpriest, 
Notice he says archpriest, not just priest this time, as he did in Hebrews 5, 6. And he was designated by God an archpriest like Melchizedek. Now, the PT assumes, and he does so under the Holy Spirit, so he's right. When God said you're a priest forever, he meant you're an archpriest for the age, like Melchizedek. Now, here we go into the interlude, into the tune-up section in Hebrews 5.11. We have a lot to say about this, meaning this oath-fortified oracle. What is the oath-fortified oracle? You are an archpriest like Melchizedek, fortified by an oath. If you read Psalm 110.4 carefully, it says, the Lord swore and will not retract. He'll not change his mind. You are a priest forever for the age like Melchizedek. And so the writer then says, we have a lot to say about this, meaning this oath-fortified oracle. But it's hard to articulate in such a way to make it intelligible to you because you've become sluggish in listening. The word is nothroi once again. I don't like to keep mentioning this word because it hurts a little, I'm sure. Nothroi, sluggish, lethargic, dull. Nobody wants to be called dull. Hebrews 6, 11. Now, this again, I wanna, I'm just kind of skipping along to show you that there is a, an arc of coherence here that travels through Hebrews. Hebrews 6, 11. We want very much for every one of you. That's without exception. A pastor wants everyone in his, within his hearing to benefit from his message. So he said, we want very much for every one of you to demonstrate the same ardor. I use ardor here because I think it's a good word, A-R-D-O-R, for fervency or enthusiasm or boldness even. We want very much for every one of you to demonstrate the same ardor till the ultimate realization of your hope. That is, until you realize that hope completely. Hold it fast. So that you won't be... Or we could say it this way, so that you won't remain sluggish. You see how 5.11 and, f- and 6.12 connect? Nothroi again is used, 5.11 and 6.12. You're starting to see the structure of the epistle or the discourse or the homily that we have before us. It's very meticulously, meticulously planned out and structured. We want very much for every one of you to demonstrate the same ardor until the ultimate realization of your hope, verse 12, so that you won't remain sluggish, but become imitators. And here we have mimitai, very key word, if I may use the word key as an adjective. Mimitai, mimitai. Imitators of those who through faithfulness and patience now possess what was promised them. Now possess what was promised them. He's referring to the saints of former ages that are listed and chronicled in Hebrews 11 verses 4 
through 40, that they now possess what was promised them in the presence of God. Hebrews 6. Now, it's not all together, though, because they are still waiting for us, according to Hebrews 11.40. They're still waiting for us to be perfected or completed. Now, in a further reach in the same section, we have Hebrews 6.18, that through two unchangeable things, unchangeable is amatathaton, things that can't change, immutable is good too, I, the Lord, change not. That through two unchangeable things, in neither of which God is capable of lying. So I think those two unchangeable things are, one, the oath that fortifies the promise. Two, the promise, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, or you're a priest for the age. The promise and the oath, or we could say the oracle fortified by an oath. These two unchangeable things, in neither of which God is capable of lying, he has immutability and veracity, we who have fled for refuge, now you think here of A.D. 70, because they've fled Jerusalem, or they've fled the system that's ready to be judged. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us, the hope set before us means that it's a promise from God that you can identify in the scriptures. Verse 19, which hope we have as a secure and certain anchor for our soul. Hope, he mixes metaphors here immediately, which is a kind of exciting. Hope that enters into the very sanctuary, meaning the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain. That's the curtain that separates the heavenly holy place from the holiest place, the place of utmost holiness. Verse 20, right where a forerunner has entered for us, for our benefit, literally. Here is a benevolent Christology again. A forerunner has entered for us. Prosdromos, forerunner, has entered for us. Jesus, who has become, what? Archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. So all this gives explication to Hebrews 4.14, where the PT says, and again, Hebrews is a pastoral innovation of apostolic truth. I'll say that again. Hebrews is a pastoral innovation from apostolic truth. All this, again, goes back to ekontes, Un archieria megan. Therefore, having a great archpriest. The whole point, we have a great archpriest. Over and against the accuser, he said, you don't have a priest. You don't have an archpriest. You don't have the benefit. Oh, yes, we do. That we, they, and that I want to bring us up to our own level of our own time here, too. They, also we, have the astonishing benefit of a benevolent, divine, and human representative in heaven who is at the right side of the infinite, eternal majesty and has his ear, as we say. He has his ear for us. I'm trying to give you a sense of this whole preparatory word by looking at both ends of it with the suggestion of a kind of pincer movement. And this will better prepare us 
to grasp the significance of the section of the homily between 511 and 620. By now, at least, we're equipped to begin this section with Hebrews 5.11, which we'll look at again as we close. We have a lot to say about this oath-fortified oracle, but it's hard to articulate in such a way as to make it intelligible to you since you've become sluggish in listening. Another way to say that, you haven't made a priority out of Bible doctrine. In this message, I've made a foray into the heart of the homily in order to familiarize you in advance with its content so that when we get there, the territory will not be entirely unfamiliar to you. So, Father, we thank you. Render these words effective. Make them effective for blessing as well as for challenge, for only you can do it because it's a divine action. So I stand back and stand in awe of you as you make this message effective. In Jesus' name, amen.